0: okay we are um thinking again about redeemer last week we looked at at um scripture god's word to us the week before we looked at the gospel god's work for us in jesus and tonight we want to look at justification the, the benefit one of the benefits that we have in jesus and one of the things that we're committed to uh as a church now some of this you may have heard me speak i i probably preach about justification in almost every sermon in some way, shape, or form. Uh, But um, there's a method to our madness. Uh, Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verses uh, 1 through 11. We want to consider justification and its benefits tonight. Romans 5, 1 to 11. Before we do that, um, some of you know the story of C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, uh, he, was, he was preaching to thousands in um, the sanctuary, and afterwards an elderly woman walked up as he was greeting people after the service, and some of his elders were standing there with him, and, and she walked up to him, and she said, uh, you know, Mr. Spurgeon, uh, I just wanted you to know that you are the most uh, arrogant and irritating and obnoxious and annoying man I have ever heard of. And I wanted to be the one to tell you. And then she kind of huffs off. And, of course, the, everybody around kind of got quiet. They're all kind of curious to say, you know, what will he say? And, and Spurgeon turns to one of his elders and says, sheesh, she doesn't know the half of it. <laughs> I love that story. I want to be around people like that, you know, uh, who um, can own their deficiencies who don't take great offense when you point out the truth about them, uh, even if you do it in mean spiritedly. Uh, what what causes a Spurgeon or any of us to act like that? I I think the thing that will help us do that the most is the doctrine of justification. There are other things that flow from it, but appreciating this is important. And so, um, so let me invite you to to ponder this passage. We're going to kind of see the uh, the big picture here tonight. Uh, this is God's word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen, this is God's word. Let's, let's pray. Father, I pray that you bless us tonight and help us to know the joy of the benefits and the peace and the assurance that, comes from belonging to Jesus and I pray you'd show us him um, and strengthen our souls and our confidence in him. In his name I pray, amen. So I want want you to think about justification and what benefits flow from it and I think it'll become obvious why we're committed uh, to teaching this. It's central to the gospel. Now when I say justification, what do I mean? What are we talking about? Um, justification means that those who believe in God, God declares righteous. Uh, God accepts us as righteous in his sight, and he pardons us for all of our sins because of Christ and his finished work for us. Justification is extremely important. I don't think there's anything more important for you foundationally in the Christian life. Um, There are other important things. But if you don't have this foundation, you're on shaky ground, and you'll feel like you're on shaky ground with God. Um, That's why uh, John Calvin said, justification um, is the main hinge on which salvation turns. And Martin Luther said, uh, it is the chief article of Christian doctrine um, when justification has fallen Everything has fallen. And he goes on to say, it begets, it nourishes, it builds, it preserves and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. And I think that's no hyperbole, friends. It's so vital uh, a truth of what Jesus has done for us and what we get from him Uh, Notice a few things about justification itself before we get to the benefits that come from justification. Who's it for? That will will help you understand the doctrine. Uh, He says, verse one, therefore, since we have been justified, okay, who's the we? We have been. Paul's speaking of himself. He's speaking of the Roman Christians, but he goes on in this chapter to tell you who he's talking about. Who are the people... To whom justification comes, notice how he describes them. In verse six, he says, we were weak. And he says, we were ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. He goes on uh, at verse eight to say say that God shows his love for us while we were still sinners. In verse 10, he says, if while we were enemies, okay, He's piled up all these terms. This is the way the Bible speaks about us, and we don't want to own this for ourselves. Uh, but but he's saying here that God delights to rescue and to justify the weak, the ungodly, the sinners who fall short of his glory, uh, the wicked, his enemies, okay? Not people who are already his friends or people who are already godly or people who are perfect or people who try their best, uh, but the ungodly. and And so... Um, that tells you a little bit about justification, who it's for, and there ought to be a sweet comfort to our souls in that. Um, some of us think that by our misdeeds, um, we're out of the reach of God's care, or that we must be beyond the pale of God carrying a, a witch. Or a whoop about us right um, because of because of the horrible things that we have done, and we know that we've done and and Paul is saying to you, no, it's for the enemies of God, it's for the ungodly. Uh, what's so great about it? What does it mean? It's a legal term, and it's the opposite of condemnation okay so you, you, it's it's a courtroom term you're you're before a judge. And the judge either condemns you, he finds you guilty for your sins and he announces you are guilty and he condemns you or, God, or the judge acquits you. He finds you righteous before the law. He finds, you, um, um, uh, he finds you to be not guilty. Here, God declares the ungodly, wicked, sinner, rebellious mm. enemy, traitor to the throne he declares them to be right before the law. He declares them to be pardoned of all their sins and accepted as righteous in his sight. As perfectly righteous as Jesus himself is, why does he do it? Because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Because because Jesus died for us and Jesus lived for us. This is the thing in, in, in 11, 10 years of college campus ministry, The University of Arkansas and and most of my other ministry elsewhere, I find that Christians don't appreciate the way that we should. Most Christians and a lot of non-Christians, fewer and fewer, but a lot will understand when you say, so what did Jesus do for us? They'll say, you know, Jesus died on the cross for us. Okay, well, well, what what does that mean? What does that get us? Well, Jesus died for my sins, right? So I can be forgiven. Amen. It's a glorious truth. But that is half of the doctrine of justification, okay? It's important for you to know that all your sins are wiped away, buried on the cross in Jesus. But Jesus also lived for you. He was the perfectly pleasing son of God, man as man was meant to be, always delighting in the will of his father and doing it from the heart. He did that and he did that not just so he doesn't have to die for his own sins because then he's perfect, and that's true, but he did it to credit his obedience to you, uh, to give a perfect life before the throne of God that God would accept in substitute for your failure to live a perfect life. Um, and that, that is a glorious truth, friends. It's, it's the place of rest. The, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, uh, of Jesus, quoting the Psalms, Here I am, O God, I have come to do your will. Okay, And Jesus did that. He did the will of God. And that's why the father looked at his son, even in his baptism, and says, this is my beloved son. And with him, I am well pleased. And again, God is well pleased with us in his son. And so, uh, so that's justification, friends. Your sins are accounted to Christ and he dies for them. The obedience of Christ is accounted to you and you have life and acceptance before God uh, in his perfection, credited to you. Um, That turns everything uh, that people think about salvation upside down because what people tend to think is, whether it's Christianity or any other religion, people tend to think, sort of their gut says, well, what I really need to do, what religion is about, it's, just, it's about people offering to God righteousness, either by making the right pilgrimage or praying three times you know, a day in a certain direction or you know, by, by having a calm demeanor or by reading their Bible more or attending worship or doing things Christians should do or whatever religion it is. People think Religion and Christianity is about offering to God our righteousness. And instead, Christianity is about receiving from God the gift of righteousness uh, in Jesus. So it's absolutely important. um, How does it come to us? There's a variety of expressions in this text. In verse 1, it says, we have been justified through faith, right? But at verse 9, it says, we have now been justified by his blood, and if you go back to chapter 3, verse 24, it says we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. We're justified by God's grace as a gift, we're justified by the blood of Christ, and we're justified through faith in him. But don't think when Paul says we've been justified by faith or through faith, he means Again, that, that, that faith is a substitute for your work. That, okay, your, your failure to do all you should do is made up for by your believing, as if it becomes the one work that God requires of you to be right with him, because it's the, well, now it's, God has sort of a... Uh, he asks for something less than perfection. Faith is not the substitute for works not your work. Christ's work is the substitute for your work. Faith is simply the instrument by which you receive and are united to Christ in his finished work for you. So that's vital. What do we get from it? Uh, What comes from this? Um, Notice a a number of things uh, he says. Let me highlight five. And... um, Before I do that, it may be helpful to add this uh, word. Notice the language of verse verse one again. Therefore, since we have been justified, it's not our being justified. It's not incomplete. It's not partial. It's not a work in progress. It's not unfinished. Um, Whereas in our... Sanctification in our in our progress in the Christian life and maturity and becoming more like Jesus that's that, that varies immensely, okay, among all Christians. Um, how much the Holy Spirit has yet made us be like Jesus is a thing of degrees. Some produce thirty fruit, some produce sixty fruit, some produce ninety. Fruit, you know, and we're all on a pilgrimage in that way. Justification is not like that. It's a once and for all declaration that's finished in a sense, it's done. You are justified and you will remain justified. It's once and for all. It's for all time. Uh, so it's complete. So what, what, what flows from justification? If you're justified, what else do you have? Now, five or six things that Paul highlights here just to fly through uh, number one, he says, we have peace with God. Therefore, verse one: since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And he's not talking about that peace that you know—that's the, the peaceful, easy feeling, or the peace that sort of the uh, sense of emotional or psychological or spiritual well-being that God does bless people with, and sometimes in our greatest trials, he comes strongly to our aid to give us peace which passes understanding, as Paul talks about in Philippians 4, right? We pray for peace in midst of of trials and conflict and hard things. But he's not talking about that kind of peace. He's talking about um, peace with God, not peace from God, or, or not the peace that God gives us, but the peace that God has accomplished in reconciling enemies. So he's basically saying we are no longer at a state of war. We're not at enmity. God is not against us. God is for us. Um, As Matthew Henry said, sin breeds a quarrel between us and God. We were enemies. We were traitors. He was against us. And as Paul will say in Romans 8, Uh, He's no longer against us. God is for us, who can be against us. Um, So the first thing you get is peace. The second is you get a standing in grace. That's the next thing he says. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, through him, verse two, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Yeah, unpack that. We stand. We have a standing in grace. Um, it's helpful to Paul's using the the a word for in the sphere of or in the in the region of in the realm of. It's it's you know if you imagine a basketball player on the court, uh, you're either in the paint or you're not in the paint, right? And there's a three second rule. If you're in the paint too close to the basket for too long, you know it's a penalty, it's a foul, or you know change possession. Uh, you're either you're either standing in the paint. And that's where you are, or you're outside. Paul is saying we are now standing in the paint called grace, as it were. We're in the sphere of grace. We have a standing in it. And grace is unmerited favor in the face of our demerits. And we've been introduced to it, he says. How did I come to be in a standing in grace? Uh, Through Christ we obtained access into it. Uh, he likens Jesus as a mediator, or as an, or as an introducer, um, somebody who sort of takes you by the hand and walks you into where you need to be. You know, if, if you and I in this day and age, probably in any day and age, we were to walk up to Buckingham Palace and say, you know, I, I want to see the Queen. You know, they'd be like, yeah, right. I mean, you have. Do you, have, do you have an invitation? Do you have any standing before the queen? Do you have any right to be here? Well, no, I'm just a common American. Okay, then the prince pulls up in his limo, and he rolls down his window, and he says, what's the problem? And you say, well, I, I want to go see, see the queen, and, and the prince says, I'll take you. Get in the limo. You get in the limo, and then you just drive right in, the prince waltzes you into the presence of the queen, right, and introduces you. Mom, this is Martha. Martha, this is my mom. She's the queen of England. You have been introduced by another, right? And that's what he's saying here. Jesus has, has walked you into the sphere of grace so that you stand in it. You are standing in it. And Paul's talking to people. He knows they failed. He knows they stink at being Christians. He knows that what they think of themselves is I've fallen down you know, I'm buried in muck or I've fallen out of grace. People talk about that all the time in the Christian world, right? I'm in grace. I'm out of grace. I mean, that's not Paul's language at all. He doesn't qualify it. If you're a Christian, you are standing in the spirit of grace. So that's another benefit we have. Your place before God is not precarious. It's secure. Uh, third thing is, he says, we have the hope of Glory. Um, he he um, he finishes verse two by saying, "We rejoice in hope of the glory of God." What's he saying? Um, hope, not not wishful thinking, not not the way that we use the word hope. You know, where you know I hope at Christmas to get these ten things off my Christmas list, and I, I wrote them down, and I'm kind of counting on Santa Claus or mom and dad, you know, to. To get them, I don't really know if I'm going to get them. I'm wishing for them, but it's up in the air. That's we—that's what we think hope is, but that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. Hope is rather uh, um, the anticipation of something you know is certainly going to happen, or is has certainly been promised to you, and the promise is sure. It's—it's—it's it's, it's more like uh, you've you know Christmas and you've asked for a bike for Christmas. And your dad took you to the store, and he bought the bike, and he put it in the attic waiting for Christmas Day to give it to you, right? Uh, now, maybe that's, you know, depending on how long he makes you make, wait, that's, that could be, it could be perceived as painful or cruel. Um, but the loving father, you know, to his children has, has certainly provided a bike, and you're simply waiting for the day it's given to you. Well, likewise, Paul says, we have the hope, the certain, uh, and, and we can anticipate the certain fulfillment of the glory of God. Um, what, is it, what is it we're waiting in hope for? It is, it is um, it's the glory. God's glory revealed to us in all its fullness. Um, and we could you know, talk about a lot, a lot of things that might mean. I think 1 Corinthians 13 is helpful where Paul says, you know, now we see as through a glass darkly. But, you know, then one day we see face to face. Um, now we live by faith. One day it will be by sight, right? Um, Where we don't, we do have, and yet um, there's a much greater fullness that's coming. And and so we have, we have this hope, he says, in the midst of trials. And um, we won't go on at length about those trials and what he's, how he's trying to help us there. Get reorganized here. Um, but um, but he does say God uses even those trials to increase our hope, right? That's that's some of what he's saying. The trials do um, through them God increases our expectations and our anticipation and our longing and our waiting, right? And that that shapes our character but as we wait in hope for the glory of God. So we have peace, we have standing in grace, we have hope. Um, And uh, then we also, he says, we have God's love and the Holy Spirit. Notice the language, verse five, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Uh, so a few things there, um, about the Holy Spirit, every justified person has the Holy Spirit. There is no such thing as a justified person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, which is to say there's no such thing as a Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts as has the love of God. Um, and, uh, he says uh, the love of God has been poured into our hearts by means of the Holy Spirit. Now look, I absolutely recognize there are degrees um, of our experience of the love of God, our, our sense of it, our, our satisfaction in it, our delight in it, our, our um, spiritual experiential uh, knowledge of the love of Christ. There's degrees in that. And there are days when God gives us a burst of uh, a sense of how much he loves us. And there are days when I wake up and my heart is cold. And I imagine wrongly that God's heart is cold. You know, and my affections ebb and flow. And I think wrongly that God's affections ebb and flow. Um, and there, are, so there, there are days my own sense and experience waxes and wanes, right? Um, there's there's degrees of that within the Christian community. So some churches seem full of the love of Christ, and the people seem delighted in it. And there are some churches at times, you know, either through immaturity or a lack of good health, and other reasons, um, have less of a, a sense of the love of Christ. So there there are degrees of that. The love of Christ in our hearts can be increased over time. Okay. Paul in Ephesians 3, we, we, we looked at this when we preached through Ephesians, prays that God, okay, um, um, uh, I, what does he pray? Ephesians three fourteen to 19, he prays um, uh, that God out of his glorious riches would strengthen you by his spirit in the inner being that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in the love of Christ might know, might have power together with all the saints, to know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. It takes power to know that. It takes the Holy Spirit working to do that. And Paul prays it for people because he knows that, eh, you know, like himself, we, we sometimes have very little sense internally or experientially of the love of Christ, but we can grow in it. So he prays that we would grow in it, right? So, um, so I, I, I don't want to um, overplay how thoroughly experiential at any moment your experience of the love of Christ might be. And we can talk about that. But there is some nugget or kernel because, because the Holy Spirit is in every believer and has brought the love of Christ. And, you know, it could be as small as a mustard seed and you just barely even know it's there. But it, it blooms and grows over time. Um, But he also goes on to say, not just do we have an experience of the love of God, but we have the assurance of the love of God. And actually it's that assurance which can help you with the experience. Um, Not only have we tasted it, he says, but it's been demonstrated to us. It's an objective fact that God loves us. And you can see it. And where do you see it? Verses six through eight. You see it. Uh, Eric, were you going to say on the cross? I did. Um... Yeah, God shows, God demonstrates, God proves his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? Um, it's proved for the weak and the helpless and the ungodly and the enemy, that he loves us. And you know, um, you can tell the greatness of a gift by, on the one hand, the costliness of the gift to the giver and also the unworthiness of the one who's given it. The, the, the greater the cost to the giver or the, or the greater the unworthiness of the recipient uh, tells you how great the gift is, right? And so on the, on the one hand, who is it that's been given? It's, it's Christ, the perfect son of God, crucified by sinful man upon a cross, God's most precious possession, so to speak his unbeloved son, to traitors, enemies. Um, and so we are, to, we are to, in a sense, see the love of God in that. Uh, it demonstrates it. It proves it. And that, that is um, where you, when you don't sense in your own experience and you're questioning and you're struggling and you're, you're, you can't see the father and you're going, does the father love me? I think the father is saying, look at, look at my cross again. Uh, look what I've done for you. And Jesus is saying, and look what I volunteered to do for you. Look what I delighted to do for you. So so we have we have the Holy Spirit and, and love. And then finally, one last thing we have, because of justification, we have the assurance of our future acceptance with God. Um, this isn't just a, this is no temporary thing. Notice okay. verses 9 through 11, where Paul closes, um, he um and there i think there are two keys to unlocking that passage one is to to note the tense of the verbs and the the other is to note the phrase much more let's unpack that just for a second notice the tense of the verbs something has happened in the past with effects in the present and something will yet happen in the future okay past present and future so in verse 9 he says we have have now been justified, okay, present, or we have now been. Verse 10, we were reconciled, and we are now reconciled. And verse 11, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So something has happened in the past with effects in the present. And notice the future tense, verse nine, we shall be saved. That's future, We shall be saved by him from the wrath of God, right? Uh, End of verse 10, future tense. We shall be saved in the future by his life. So Paul looks ahead to one day, one final day of reckoning where all will stand before the judge, where the wrath of God will be poured out on sinners. And he says, we'll be saved in that day. You will have life in that day, Um. You will be acquitted because you have already been acquitted. You have already been justified. You've already been declared righteous with God. Um, so you can have confidence in that future day. But then, but then, know the second key to unlocking that passage is this language of much more. He uses an argument from the from the the um, uh, from the greater to the lesser. Um, the language of much more in verse in, in verse 9, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him. And again, verse 10, uh, argument, it's an argument, um, it's not from the lesser to the greater. Don't misunderstand his argument. Okay, what's, what's, a, what's an argument from the lesser to the greater? Okay, an illustration of that would be this. Not quite like what we did tonight, although you did get coffee and dessert, so hold on to that idea. But you, 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 you got invited to my house for dinner. But say you get invited to somebody's house for a dinner party, right? That They invite you over. They serve you hors d'oeuvres. We didn't have those tonight. But, but imagine you got hors d'oeuvres. So this, this illustration stinks, right? Because the meal didn't suit the illustration. But um, what's the appetizer? It's, it's a promise of things to come, so to speak, right? It wets your appetite, and you're standing around, you're enjoying them, and then you say to yourself, okay, should I, like, uh, should I go back for thirds on the appetizers, or or should I, should I leave room? Because surely there's more coming, right? And, if, and of course, uh, there is, right? So I need to save room for the greater portion, okay? That's, I've tasted the lesser, and I'm waiting for the greater. That's not Paul's argument here. His argument is the reverse. The greater has come. Uh, so that, so in other words, Paul's logic is this. You've been invited over. You know, the invitation was set. You agreed to come. The, 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 the family went out and they, they shopped. They came home and they washed and they chopped and they cooked and they spread the feast. And you came over and you had the appetizers. And then you had, you know, uh, soup and salad and meat you know, and then you had seconds and you stuffed yourself silly, and then you you said to yourself, Oh my goodness, I mean I've had appetizers and soup and salad meat, it's been awesome, but surely, with as fabulous as this has been, surely there's there's coffee and something sweet, you know, to kind of close the meal. I've had the greater and I anticipate the lesser. That's actually the argument Paul is using by this language. In in other words, He's saying, look, it's most easily seen in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, that's the greater thing. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved in the future by his life. The greater part is that God took his enemy and made him his friend. The lesser, so to speak, no less glorious but the lesser part is that God deals with his friends in a friendly way. You having been reconciled, he loves you. He's made you his friend. You're not his enemy. Of course he's gonna preserve you and continue to treat you in a friendly way. He's already done the hardest thing. He's done the greater thing. And the point is that God is no turncoat. God is not fickle, and as Paul concludes in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus because God's done the hardest thing. And so uh, that's, that's justification and its benefits, friends. Salvation is secure because justification is once and for all. Jesus already lived for you, already died for you, and you have been united by faith by a gift of God's grace to Christ and his work. Um, So, you don't need to prove yourself. God is not the kind of father who's disappointed in his children when they aren't the goal scorer in soccer. He doesn't shake his head in shame and say, I wish my kid was that kid. You don't have to prove yourself to him to earn his love, to remain in his love. You are loved, you're pardoned, you're welcome. And you don't need to fear. God knows you still sin. He knew all your sins when Jesus died for you. And he wasn't, he's not ashamed to be called your elder brother and he wasn't ashamed to die for your sins when he did. And he died for all of them, past, present, and future. And you do not need to fear. And you do not need to defend yourself when you're called on your sin. You'll be like Spurgeon. You know, I probably am far more obnoxious and annoying and irritating and arrogant than that lady thinks I am. You know, my wife knows that, but you know, I probably should own that too. It's okay. You know why it's okay? not that I want you to call me names, but I want you to love me enough to be honest with me. And it's okay because you know why? All my righteousness is in Christ. It's not a blow. It's a blow to my pride, sure. But it is not a blow to my standing with God or my acceptance with him. He isn't shocked by it. And and so it's it's okay. I don't have to defend myself. And, and friends, we talk about these things in various ways a lot at Redeemer and, and you, hear, you hear it probably most often at the close of a sermon or as we go to the Lord's table, which is designed to give you confidence and assurance in the work of Christ for you. Um, because when, God, when, when this gets into your bones and you believe it, um, then the fruit of the Spirit can't be stopped, so to speak. It's, it's as you understand this, and, and you know you can rest and you can delight in Jesus, that you'll have joy in Jesus and that you'll be interested in loving others with the kind of love you have received. Let's uh, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your love. And uh, I pray that you would satisfy us with your unfailing love, that we would sing for joy and be glad all our days. Amen. All right um,